0: Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, today's episode of Rethink Retail features my guest, Michael LeBlanc. Michael is the founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc & Company, Inc., He brings over 25 years of experience in e-commerce leadership across retail, branding, and marketing and has been on the front lines of retail industry change for his entire career with brands such as Black & Decker, Levi Strauss, Hudson's Bay, The Shopping Channel, Pandora Jewelry and the Retail Council of Canada, where he remains a senior advisor. Michael is also the producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast take a listen. This is a joint venture with the Retail Council of Canada. Good stuff. Michael, will you kick us off by telling us a bit about yourself and your background in the retail industry?
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, Julia, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's really fun to have the microphone turned around, so to speak, so I get to do uh, the conversation. So thanks again. Of
0: course, you have the hard part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, wait a minute. I got to, yeah. So thank you. I mean, the introduction covers a lot of a 25 years veteran retailer, and I've been in mostly in the retail industry, but also I've been in the media side. And lately, what I've been doing for the past couple of years is working on my own with a couple of properties. And I do everything from retail advisory practice, I get a little bit of consulting, I travel the world and do keynote speeches, try to explain this crazy retail industry to all kinds of different people. I was in Dublin, Ireland last week, and also had the Voice of Retail podcast, which is just a real fun opportunity for me. I do two interviews, and then the news of the week each and every week. And just you get to meet the most interesting people, hear their stories. And uh, we all learn together because, as we know, in retail, you can learn every day something different. It's such a fun and exciting industry.
0: Absolutely. And I was just in Dublin as well last month. How would you like your trip? I loved
1: it. I mean, it's a uh, work and play. So I was actually there as a guest working for the Irish government. They have a division called Enterprise Ireland, which is actually one of the largest VC Companies or firms in the world. So they actually wow. take a stake in tech companies. You now, they're not all retail tech, they do agriculture tech, ag tech, med tech, but they've got 4,000 plus companies under wing. And uh, part of what they do, you know, Ireland is not a big place, so they are very outwardly globally focused. And so I've made several trips over there and in this instance, took a few retailers from Canada over to Dublin and Waterford, which is kind of their high-tech center, to meet some great tech companies. And, uh, you know, it's just different, right? So you get to meet not the usual cast of characters, and plus you get this side, very significant side benefit of discovering Dublin and Ireland and the hospitality if you hadn't been there.
0: That's great. So you guys met with some people, some retail companies that are backed by Enterprise Ireland. So that's exciting stuff. And I know that's like a global, more of a global aspect, but you, I would say are probably an expert in the Canadian market. And I know that you guys have a lot of transformation going on as well in the retail space. And I wanted to know, just broadly speaking, What are the trends that you're keeping your eye on right now?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And most of my career has been based in Canada, though. I spent some time working for large U.S. companies. And of course, retail is undergoing the same transformation around the world in one degree or another. So Mm -hmm. as a macro statement, there's more similarities than differences between Canadian and U.S retail, but there's a couple of unique differences. We are a different nation with different dynamics and some of the trends, as I said, are very similar, but you've got other trends like this whole e-commerce thing could be something in Canada. E-commerce developed very differently in Canada for a whole bunch of reasons we can talk about, but it is developed slower than it did in the US. And there's, like I said, a number of different factors, tax being one of them. So for the entire time e-commerce has been developing, consumers have always paid tax. There's no tax a haven from which you would not pay tax. So the inherent motivations were different. So the industry developed differently here. And also it's a matter of scale. Canada is a very different market. We'll talk about that later in terms of scale. You know, we're 10% of the population of the US, but oftentimes the cost of tech and the cost of infrastructure is the same. So the opportunity... Sure profile is different. Other things that are big in terms of trends, Black Friday is actually a big trend in Canada. That might be surprising or not surprising to some of your listeners, but Black Friday was never a thing in Canada up until about 10 years ago. Oh, It didn't exist as a holiday. We have Boxing Day here, which has been a long-standing holiday that happens the day after Christmas or depending on the province, some Force closures on the 26th. So it would happen on December 27th. But in the past 10 years, Black Friday has become a thing in Canada. And we can talk about why, but that's a huge trend. And now we're seeing Canadians shopping more on Black Friday weekend or whatever we want to call it with Cyber Monday than there are on Boxing Day. That's a big shift. That's pretty major. Another thing you've got is you've got cannabis retail. We'll talk about that. That's a big transformation in Canada. Cannabis now, retail cannabis now legal has been for the past year. So you now have an underground market that across the country is starting to become an above ground market. I know it's legal in several states, several major states, but nationally it's legal here. And that's starting to transform how we think and you know how we think about real estate, where the real estate is going. And really city or a province like Alberta, you have 300 stores that didn't exist this time last year. So 300
0: that's, in Alberta alone.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's projected that as the market Absorbs, you know, how big is the cannabis market? And fascinating, kind of a little side story the Canadian government measures statistics through an organization called Stats Canada, Statistics Canada, a federal government organization. And, and they were tasked with, as we approached legalization, so how big is this market? We don't really know. And how do we gauge the size of the market? So they came up with, I had this wonderful interview with the head of Stats Canada about this. They created Stats Cannabis, and it was a, a crowdsourced <laughs> way for Canadians to go on and report in an online tool what they were paying for their cannabis. Now, think about that. The Canadian government asked its citizens (laughs) to willingly go and report illegal activity. But millions and millions of Canadians did that and still to this day do that.
0: And that's surprising. It's a little surprising.
1: Well, it's interesting, right? Because now we all knew that legalization was on the horizon, right? So right. it was not- it wasn't a trap. No, no, <laughs> it wasn't one of those. You've won the lottery traps. And what we've discovered is that the market is about four and a half to five and a half billion dollars today in the Canadian market. Now for context, and that's in the what we would call the black market or what we now call the legacy market. But for context, beer in this country is about an $8 billion industry. So these are huge Hmm. industries. So in the past year and in the years and really decade to follow, we're seeing that industry now start to move in from the shadows and into the traditional retail who are buying stores. And it could be a province like Alberta or Ontario where I am could be a thousand retail stores that didn't exist before. Now, the dollars existed in the economy, if you know what I mean, but now it's measured in tax. (laughs) Yeah,
0: now that tax factor comes back in that you spoke about.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So now you've got a whole bunch of other things that happen, but certainly from a real estate perspective, from a retail perspective, from a talent perspective, this is now kind of transforming our market. So that's different. That's a lot of the discussion that happens here in Canada. And again, many of the same things are happening to transform retail in Canada but different because we didn't overbuild generally the way, for example, the overbuildness happened in the United States. So there's far fewer store closings. That's not a thing here. A couple of chains do close, but not in the thousands because we just didn't overbuild as kind of a net assessment at the end of a couple of years. But the forces are very similar. It's challenging environment. There's not a lot of margin for error. Online is a significant part of retail, probably eight to 10% of core retail, because I like to represent that numbers, taking out things like automotive and gas. So it's well behind by percentage what it is in the States, but it's growing at a really fast clip
0: for sure. And would you say, because that's interesting that in Canada, you don't have maybe the the issue with store closings and empty retail space. So is the barrier of entry actually maybe a little bit higher for retailers or entrepreneurs wanting to get into the cannabis business because they might have to actually build a new store location or compete to get that location?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting year for sure, because what you had is twofold. You had, there's a lot of regulations of where you can put your stores. You had some entrepreneurs buying former illegal dispensaries and doing retrofits on the physical space because the landlord could no longer rent to that location. But you also had some greenfields. You had some in Toronto on Yonge Street, the main, one of the main strips, they had an old HMV record store that's now a cannabis store. So you're seeing some of the real estate, not so much in the malls, of course, not yet anyway, but you're seeing the kind of main street, high street real estate that's being converted into these storefronts. And in fact, in Toronto, we have a Bloor Street, which we call the Mink Mile. Locals call it the Mink Mile. It's kind of a Louis Vuitton and your Chanel. And there's a cannabis store on that street because they are positioning themselves as a higher end retail environment. So it's been a fascinating year. And to your point, there has been far less store closings here because we had less exuberant growth, shall I say. We're not immune to it by any stretch of the imagination. And the other defining characteristic that's a bit different, Retail Council of Canada did a report on shopping malls. There's a new one coming out in a couple of weeks. And out of the 30 top shopping malls in the country, only three of them posted net losses in terms of productivity. The rest posted gains. So shopping malls are still popular here. And I think You know, there's a couple of reasons for that. The customers are not so different, but what you did see, and it's kind of like your crystal ball, you can gaze down into the U.S. market and start to pick up on trends sometimes a couple of years ahead of what is happening in the Canadian market. You could say, hmm, looks like there's been some overbuilding and some store closing, and it looks like malls are losing. Only the best malls are going to win. So let's get ahead of that curve before the demographic and the psychographic trends hit in Canada. So it's a combination of both. You've got savvy operators who run great shopping malls here in Canada. And, you know, to a degree, they're still thing and e-commerce is a little less in Canada, but growing very quickly. So all these trends kind of come together to make a market that looks and feels very much like the US market, but has significant differences in other ways, very much the same.
0: Sure. Because it sounds like you said basically 27 out of the 30 malls, according to your recent report, had net gains.
1: Yeah, from a productivity perspective. And I should say for your listeners, Retail Council of Canada is the equivalent in the US would be the NRF. So Mm -hmm. it is a large base of organization retail from all different types of formats that represents retail. So they really have a great hand on the pulse, so to speak, of the Canadian retail environment, not unlike NRF. So if you think about the NRF in Canada, they're not associated, but do similar work.
0: Excellent. Yeah, we actually had um, the editor of Stores Magazine with NRF, Susan Reed, on the show about a year and a half ago. So cool to be in the network. And you guys have events as well, right, at the Retail Council of Canada?
1: Yeah, very much so. I just actually wrapped up one this week. I was emceeing a flyer forum. So flyers are a big deal here in Canada. So I uh, had the pleasure of interviewing some leaders in the flyer business, print flyer business, which is still a big deal. Digital, of course, important, but print flyers are still a major element of the Canadian marketing mix. And that's one thing that had been a little different. It's still a thing here, for sure. And then coming up in the weeks to follow, we've got a bricks and mortar form where we're bringing in landlords and shopping malls and then a cannabis retail form. So we bring together retail folks and experts in the cannabis space because that's now part of retail and we bring them together for thought leadership and best practices and all that great stuff, build community. And uh, we actually as well go as a group, many Canadians would go to the NRF January show and the big show in New York. And I have the fun every year of hosting a store tour in Manhattan. So there's enough Canadian c level executives that we get on a bus and we tour what's new in Manhattan. And again, you kind of have that little crystal ball where you can say, huh, and I try to find what's happening here that may you know, may work its way up to Canada in some way, shape or form. What does that look like? And what are the differences and what are the similarities?
0: Definitely. It's interesting how there are some things you can predict, right? Based on all the factors. Yeah. Are you doing it this year, by the way, the tour?
1: Yeah, we're doing it this year. And I've got actually my pre visit coming up in a couple of weeks where I go down in advance and, you know, there's some usual ones that are on my list for sure. Hudson Yards, for example, let's walk through Hudson Yards and that's probably going to be on the tour this year. Are we Definitely. Gonna...
0: The new Nordstrom.
1: Yeah. The new Nordstrom for sure. That's exciting. The new Apple store is pretty cool. And you know what it comes down to. There's a lot to see, but we only have a couple hours and getting around Manhattan isn't getting any easier. No. <laughs> um, and I've been doing this tour in Manhattan on a Sunday for years. And I can tell you between the number of rideshare companies and the number of package delivery companies traffic is not any easier. So you really have to, sometimes the tour is guided by logistics as much as innovation. Yeah. Maybe
0: it'll be a Segway tour in the future, you know, well, yeah. go faster than the cars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. And uh, you know, there's clusters of innovation though, right? They tend to cluster, right? whether it's Soho or Hudson Yards or on Fifth Avenue, there tends to be clusters of innovation that we can look at and get a glimpse of what may come to pass, or at least what the U.S. market looks like and kind of judge from there.
0: Sure, and I'm I'll be at NRF as well, so I'd love to, yeah, you know, maybe catch you. I know it's a crazy time. I wanted to ask, I wanted to bring it back because you mentioned earlier that Black Friday was not a thing ten years ago. We're saying ten years, so that's two thousand ten. <laughs> uh, which doesn't seem like that long ago, but that was a decade ago. Why was it really good marketing from big global brands that it caught on in Canada? Or what were the factors that you think led to some e-commerce growth from that?
1: Well, I think it's three things. One is it was a defensive strategy. Ten years ago, the currency exchange rate was at par. So in other words, a dollar Canadian was a dollar US. So if you think about the geography of Canada, 90% of Canadians live within about 100 Kilometers or 150 kilometers of the US border. So there's a lot of proximity even physically with the US border, not to mention e-commerce, of course. So what we were seeing was when that dollar was at par as an industry, we're not celebrating Black Friday, it's a big deal, and Canadians were streaming across the border. So there were some lost sales that were pretty obvious there. The second thing was there's many, many US and international brands in Canada. And so they started to say, hey, maybe we should have an event. We should be in sync with our U.S. counterpart. There's a lot of buzz, of course, a lot of media spill that comes up into Canada. So it's not like Canadians didn't know that there was a Black Friday. That was a big factor. And then it became the opportunity, right? Is this the right opportunity to build in a new holiday? And in fact, there's two very distinct schools of thought because, of course, it's not a holiday here. Our Thanksgiving was a couple of weeks ago. So our Thanksgiving is much earlier than U.S. Thanksgiving. So it's not actually a holiday So it takes on a different flavor and a different characteristic. And, you know, there's really two narratives around Black Friday when you talk to retailers. And one narrative is it's fantastic. It's a demarcation point that kicks off the holiday season that we just never had before. You know, we would wait for a bit of snow on the ground or some leaves to fall for (laughs) consumers to wake up and go, oh, my God, it's Christmas right around the corner. But we didn't have that kind of big milestone event that formally or informally kicked off the holiday shopping season. And the other school of thought, the other narrative is my God, I wish can we get the toothpaste back in a tube? Because all we've done is shift sales around. We're not sure we see incremental growth. We're taking markdowns on items that we were selling at a higher rate before. And we kind of like Boxing Day because Boxing Day was a great time. You'd we you would plan promotions and deals, of course, and special buys, but it would also be a great time to say, ah, eh, maybe we overbought on this one item. Let's clear it out in Boxing mm-hmm. Day. Because it was a different, it was more self-purchase, of course, than gifting. So I'm actually moderating a panel tomorrow at one of our universities, Black Friday Trick or Treat, which is all <laughs> about, it's a bit academic at this point, so to speak, at a university, but it's here, is it a good thing for retailer or, or have we just moved dollars around at a lower margin? And then what is it going to look like this year when you've got the 29th? So it's a very late in the season and then you've got a shorter season before Christmas. So it's a great Dialogue and discussion and the dynamics are look the same, but they're a little different. And Black Friday, Cyber Monday is a very good example of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cyber Monday, of course, coming, popping up, and uh, we all look for all the numbers you know that are released right after Black Friday and Cyber Monday to see how certain retailers are doing. And I know that um, Target is one that's always on our radar. And I wanted to know because I read that Target crashed and burned, and it was very notorious story a few years ago in the Canadian market uh, and that amounted to a 6 billion dollar loss so i wanted to know from from your pure purview what went wrong
1: well a lot obviously um, and you're right so the history is that in Canada there is a mass merchandiser that i worked for that was part of the Hudson's Bay Company called Zellers and Zellers was very much like a target store in fact carried many of the same items and it was a national mass merch store and it was sold to target and so target came to Canada and basically said uh, between buying existing stores and opening new, I'm going to open 130 stores on the same day. I'm going to open a couple of new warehouses. I'm going to open up new systems. And that's not going to be that hard for us, basically, because you know that's like what we usually do in the States, right? That's not terribly difficult to open up that number of stores. You could sum it all up by three things. One, probably underestimated the complexity of opening up in a foreign country starting up a whole new distribution with new products, new vendors. Two, underestimated the regulatory differences in the two countries. And I'll give you an example of that. And three, underestimated the competitiveness of the market. And to be fair, they kind of gave everybody a two-year running start. They said, well, listen, we're going to close all the stores for a couple of years, and then we're going to launch. And it gave many retailers a chance to say, okay, that's a good wake-up call in case we need one. Let's really up our game. And they gave everybody basically a two-year running start. And so... If I pulled each of those components apart, I like to say that retailers who expand internationally into Canada, and Canada is actually one of the top 10 destinations for international retail, measure twice, cut once. Because while the market looks and feels in many ways like the U.S. market, which is why it's attractive for international retailers, because it gives them kind of a U.S. light, so to speak, it's very similar but gives them that experience of opening an international division. The differences are not insignificant. Everything from the currency, the language, right? We are a nation of two official languages, French and English. So whether you're operating in the province of Quebec or not, everything has to be from coast to coast in French and English. That's packaging signage, not necessarily in-store signage, but everything has to be compliant with both languages. So that's a complexity. And then there's these narrow regulatory difference. I'll give you an example. So in baby car seats in Canada, there was a, I'm going to kind of frame it, that there was a bolt in a different place. It was simple. It didn't make it more or less safe than a US baby car seat, but it, you needed that bolt in a different place to sell them in Canada. And so what happened was, Given the size of the market, you can't make hundreds of these different formats of car seats. So Canadians, again, being so familiar already with Target, so you thought it would be a slam dunk, right? So many Canadians, I think 40,000 even have a credit card already before Target came to Canada. So they Mm. were very familiar with the brand, but that meant they were very familiar with the pricing. They were very familiar with the assortment. And then when Target launched in Canada, the pricing was different, not just via exchange, but there's other cost inputs and differences. And then they didn't have the same breadth of assortment in some categories because they couldn't carry 10 car seats. The car seat manufacturer said, listen, there's not enough people there. I'll make you four. So that's kind of a broad lesson that there's enough differences that they mustered through. If you were to do it all over again, it'd be interesting to have that discussion with them. If they started with 10 stores, I mean, 10 stores, you can muscle your way through any problem pretty much, right? Your distribution center doesn't ship goods. No problem. We'll drive it over there. But if you got 130 stores too much too soon, then it set them up, unfortunately, for failure. And it was quite disruptive, right? Because they came in and they hired thousands, tens of thousands of people. And then in three months, they left. So it was very disruptive. And to this day, some of their real estate remains empty. And some has just recently been converted this number of years on. So it was disruptive to the industry. And a good case study for international retailers. Again, this whole, you know, if you weren't going to do it before, you better measure twice, cut once. Nordstrom, for example whether they took that lesson or whether they had that approach to begin with Nordstrom started with one store in Canada and then waited a couple of years and then another store another year passed and so now they have i think the five or six stores but over the course of many years and similarly Walmart came to Canada in, uh, in 1984 and bought a retailer called Woco made almost no changes changed in the initial years but now is Powerhouse here in Canada so lots of lessons to be learned timing also was not their friend so the key lesson is that it's a great market to be in. It's a good learning market if you're expanding internationally. It's a good market for US retailers to expand into Canada. I was reading an interview with the Untucked folks, you know, the, the shirts for men mm-hmm. that are untucked. And one of their most highly productive stores is here in Toronto. There is that expansion north and many, many brands do that and do that successfully.
0: Sure. And it sounds like, you know, with any brand expanding internationally, you just have to take those precautionary measures like you said the three things complexity the regulatory and then the competitiveness of the market yeah target probably thought they had the upper hand right they had a good amount of people who had target credit cards that were in the market but it actually backfired on them because they disappointed their customer base
1: well it's a great point because on paper if you would kind of line up all the reasons to expand in a big way into canada they all lined up right walmart was here they were successful so we can be successful too we'll come up and compete with them in canada so all the things lined up but you know, somewhere between the strategy document and the execution, there was it just fell down for them, and uh, and they left the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Target's more of a discount brand, and I did read a stat that I was pretty surprised with, and it said that analysts are reporting up to forty percent of all new retailers in the Canadian market right now are international luxury brands. We've seen a lot of new flagships opening in recent years. Can you? Speak to that a little bit. Is there like a reason that's driving or is there a driving force because luxury tends to have some issues that they're running into right now?
1: Yeah, I think it points to a similarity in our markets this bifurcation of retail where the middle ground is where there's danger and the high end and the low end are thriving. And and when we talk about bespoke retailers that are opening flagships, like these big global retailers are opening up flagships, but they're not opening up hundreds of stores. They're opening up three or four major flagships, right? So there's a part of the market in Canada that was probably underserved to some degree. There's part of the market that got on a plane and shopped in the United States for their luxury goods. And there's part of a market that is big on tourism, right? Tourism from Asia, from Southeast Asia, from around the world that now can come to Canada and that those dollars can be captured here. So even circling all the way back to our discussion about Black Friday, you've know, you now got in Canada 10 years on a significant, significant difference in terms of the retail brands that are here so, you know, there was always a couple of reasons to go shopping in the U.S. historically. One, if the exchange rate was in your favor, then that could work well. Prices are typically a bit cheaper in the U.S. just because of your scale and size. And two, the products you just couldn't get. And that's less and less each and every day the case, whether it's online, but also the physical presence of brands. So big international brands are coming here. 50, 60 of them have come here, many of which, as you correctly indicate, were luxury brands. But, you know, it gives them great experience as they expand and go direct to customer in a market that is very much acts and looks like the U.S. market. And in and of itself, Canada is a good market. The economy is robust, but it's not big, right? It's a few cities and it's a few stores. So it's not hundreds of stores that Chanel is opening up as a couple of milestone stores. But for sure... You've got key, you know, I can think of Dyson, uh, Miele opened up their first global experience store here in Yorkdale Mall, one of our best malls in North America, actually here in Toronto, because they thought it's a great market in and of itself. And it's a very familiar market. And let's do it in Canada first. It's kind of like global expansion in a familiar place.
0: Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's good for tourism as well. And, you know, we talked a lot about the cannabis market and how Canada just celebrated its first anniversary, which I, I love that term. It's funny. We
1: call it can tourism <laughs>
0: Okay. So it is a huge driving factor for tourism. Like what are the numbers? Do you know?
1: Well, we don't really know that specifically. I wouldn't say it's huge because of course you can't bring it back across the border, right? So you can't come to Canada and buy your cannabis and head back home. In fact, one of the most startling images I put up when I do presentations at every airport in Canada, there's these large garbage bins with a sign above <laughs> them that says, you know mm-hmm. reminder you can't take your cannabis outside of Canada so what you've got is all the airports with bins of cannabis it's,
0: it's a clear. cannabin yeah <laughs> it's a cannabin
1: and very so we can get on the weeds on all this uh, quite <laughs> quite deep on it for sure um but no i, I think what you see when i talk to uh, retailers they can tell tourist retailers because they sell pre-rolls as opposed you know so these are ready to use recreational cannabis products and for sure there's tourism interprovincial tourism and then there's tourism people who come here and want to enjoy the product free of any concerns about anything other than you can't smoke where you can't smoke. And that's another Mm -hmm. limiter, right? So the smoke free act in Canada, you can't just pick up some cannabis and smoke it in your hotel room like it is in the States. You have to go to certain places. So it is a big deal. It's not an export product, so to speak at the retail level, but for sure people come up and, you know, it's another great reason to come visit all of our cities. If you're interested in um, partaking.
0: Mm -hmm, Definitely. And just the you know, it's another reason for people to come to Canada and spend money in retail as well. So in other categories. Yeah,
1: very much so. As municipalities try to think about their cannabis strategy and and how it rolls out, it's just a different thing. Like when I talk internationally about it, you know, it just bends some minds. Again, not unusual in certain states, Colorado, California, and many other states in the U.S., very similar. But the fact it's nationally legal has uh, material differences in infrastructure and other things, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I read the new Nordstrom flagship that just opened in New York. It's funny because they have a bar, a full bar that's going into their shoe department. And I wonder, you know, in the future, in 20 years from now, or maybe even sooner, will we have, you know, like dispensaries that are within certain retail shops, kind of like bars are sometimes.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, for sales, for sure. I mean, you know, the consumption of product is not always smoking, right? So in fact, as of last week, edibles are now legal in Canada. So when you talk about that cannabis market, you get beyond the stigmatization of smoking. So now edibles become a thing that you can enjoy in many other different places. Uh, Mm. So you are already starting to see in small ways, retailers start to think about what dispensary or what a cannabis retail store looks like, shop and shop kind of thing. Right. Early days, you know, we're only a year in, and the industry in the first six or eight months really was struggling with a shortage of supply. Actually, there wasn't enough supply. So retailers are now just kind of right-sizing and actually getting product. So they're now starting to turn their minds to years ahead where they think about those kind of real estate strategies. But, you know, the first year really has been characterized by, I just need the product. I don't care what there's stores were closing for days on end because they had no product. One of those hiccups, Mm. early days hiccups, but that's uh, to some degree, if not entirely resolved itself. And now, uh, as I said, they'll start to turn their minds to how to integrate edibles into the assortment, uh, which is a different planogram, of course, as we would say in retail biz, and then think about different and alternative real estate strategies.
0: Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see, you know, where the industry heads in in just a few years because there's been so much transformation already. So and get back to
1: this theme of, you know, we've got a bit of a crystal ball, right? We just get on a plane and we go to Colorado or we go to (laughs) Las Vegas or we go to California and we kind of see what retail looks like there and what the challenges are. They're going to be different, but we kind of have a bit of a crystal ball, right? Colorado's had legal recreational cannabis going on five years. So it's not, uh, we're not cracking exactly new ground. In some ways, we are, for sure. But in other ways, we can look to our friends down south and see what uh, how the industry has evolved.
0: Mm-hmm. And I might have to correct myself on this, but I think Colorado, the state of Colorado, actually had to give a refund to residents on their taxes because of all the revenue <laughs> from the industry.
1: You know, it's a great point because the black market or the legacy market, I think last I heard, is still 40% of the market. But it does mean that 60% of the revenue now is taxable. And uh, let's be clear, those taxes go into building better roads and better infrastructure and paying for schools. So it is certainly in the case in Canada, there's three objectives, government objectives at the high level, keep our roads safe and make sure people aren't using the product, keep our children and youth safe, and then eliminate the black market and capture both the safety of the product, you know, you know, where you're what we call seed to sale, and then also the tax revenue, which flows into building much needed infrastructure, roads, taxes, and and all those other things, both at the municipal, provincial, and the federal level.
0: Mm-hmm, certainly. And before we wrap up, I just want to touch on one other thing because I'm curious. Mostly, we just heard, you know, last week Amazon is now doing this free grocery delivery uh, for Prime members, and I'm wondering, is grocery delivery a service that's picking up in the Canadian market? Are you guys seeing new players there? Or
1: I would say, yeah. Um- Yes and no. And one thing we should talk about is one of the key differences between, and I've touched on it, but I want to make sure and really accentuate it. The difference in Canada is scale. We are a vast nation, right? Only Russia is bigger than Canada, but there's not a lot of people here, right? We're a vast nation, Mm -hmm. but you you have density in a couple of three cities. So that drives a lot of different things. And particularly in grocery, you have the existing players all lining up to figure out what their strategies are going to be. I'll talk about Amazon in a minute. But you've got major Canadian retailers, Loblaws, Metro, Sobe, who are major grocery retailers, all thinking about how they are going to go to market. They each today do things a little differently. Loblaw, the biggest grocer retailer in the country, uses Instacart. Mm -hmm. Sobe's, which is a very number two, actually not unlike Kroger, has done a a joint venture with Ocado. So they're building dedicated warehouses in uh, Toronto and Montreal. So they have a different way of going to market. And Amazon in Canada is an interesting discussion because Amazon came to Canada a couple of decades ago, but even for the first 10 years, they outsourced their warehouses here. They didn't insource their warehouses. Now, over the course of time, they now have 12, maybe 13 warehouses in the country. And of course they have whole foods here, but there's only 14 whole foods here versus 400 in the States. So, you know, when you think about Amazon and grocery, they're not really in the fresh and frozen business in this country. They're more in pantry. You know, they, they're selling the goods from the shelves from Whole Foods and from other product. So they're not really a player in Canada, but when, not if is probably the right way to assess that. But the industry here is very competitive. We expect to see a lot of interesting things happen next year based on all the major players, existing players lining up. And again, Sobies, who has done the deal with uh, Ocado and, and as uh, investing a tremendous amount of money in Toronto and in Montreal to have those dedicated trucks on the road. So right now, it's a I think we'd probably estimate it's about 1% of sales in terms of 99% done in grocery stores and 1% shipped to home. We expect that to kind of start to move up for sure. And of course, it's a competitive share of stomach, so to speak, or share of appetite. You've got <laughs> meal kits, you've got Uber Eats, you've got a whole number of different ways for people to have that meal on the table each and every day. So again, more similarities and differences. It's also been a slow dynamic growth in the US. And I've seen numbers pointing to 3 to 4%, nowhere near like a South Korea at 20 or a Britain at 7%. But I, I do expect e-commerce innovation and activity in the grocery sector to be the big highlight for the next number of years, mostly because the sector has been absent, so to speak, from e-commerce. And so you're going to see a lot of change and a lot of growth From a number of different players for sure.
0: Yeah, it's great to see those partnerships forming. And, you know, to an extent, it's like a little bit rooting for the underdog before Amazon swoops in and (laughs) takes over.
1: You know, Amazon still, uh, you know, as a retailer, and they've done, uh, you know, they're very, we don't exactly know in Canada how big they are because they don't report their results. But for sure, fresh and frozen is a very competitive space in this country. And uh, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of economies to be made. Of course, with the Amazon flywheel, they'd love to have more grocery. In more people's carts because it generates them more data, as you know, a part of their business model. So we'll see, we'll see over time. And uh, really, they seem to have been focusing on just expanding, expanding their prime memberships in Canada, expanding their warehouses. So we'll see how it all settles down. Again, they don't have that same base in Canada to work from with only fourteen Whole Foods, so they have even a less base from there to start with in terms of a lifting off point. And of course, we've talked or have heard about them starting up a whole entirely different grocery chain. In the U.S., and we'll keep a close eye on that and see how it evolves up here in Canada.
0: Totally, yeah, it's crazy, and it all comes back in some way to just the convenience factor that is driving consumer behavior and the demand. And Uber Eats, sometimes you you just have you know craving for something, and you're like, I could get in my car and drive ten minutes, or I could pay fifteen extra dollars and have it delivered. You know, well,
1: you know, it's this unit economics moat basically that has been protecting retailers from too much Amazon incursion, you know, that, that they can't ship small dollar unit. But now I, I read mm-hmm. Amazon in the States is even kind of backfilling that moat where they're going to start shipping Prime members toothbrushes and toothpaste and boggles the mind because it turns unit economics on its head. But for sure, and, and again, back to the, even my first comments that there was never a tax advantage, right? You could never shop from an Amazon in Canada and pay less for the same item because of taxes that you could from another retailer. So, You know, that bootstrapped the entire industry in the United States, and I would argue it also Mm -hmm. bootstrapped Amazon. And that was purposeful, of course, right? Jeff Bezos put it into Washington State because there was nexus there as a small place to base, and, and the rest of the country didn't pay tax. But you didn't have that phenomenon here. So the market evolved differently, continues to evolve differently. They continue to merge. The trend is the trend. More people are shopping online than less each and every day, for sure. But physical retail is still very vibrant here, but it's not an easy game and uh, there's not much margin for error. Everyone wants experiential retail and we're getting it. We've got our first Eataly opening up next week, actually, in Canada. So 50,000 square foot Eataly opening up in downtown Toronto, the first one in Canada and one of their first big international expansions outside of, I guess it's their newest, I should say, Eataly store in the chain. So we'll see how that chain articulates experience and brand.
0: Oh, very cool. I'll have to check it out. I'm actually going to be in Toronto later this month.
1: You won't be able to miss it. It's in downtown Toronto on Bloor Street. There'll be lots of PR and for sure we're all lining up to go uh, check out how they articulate their vision. They've been talking about coming here for over a decade. So uh, certainly when you talk about measuring twice and cutting once, there's a great <laughs> example.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, well, then it should be an excellent grand opening, right?
1: Yeah, much anticipation. It'll create some buzz for sure. And then it's up to see how and where it can sustain its value proposition. And we'll see how it fits in. Again, Grocery a very competitive business, uh, both sides of the border, that's for sure. So we'll see how they do.
0: As with all retail, we'll see how they do. <laughs> competitive market out there. Well, as
1: I like to say, there is no retail apocalypse, but that doesn't mean that it's not transformative. And it doesn't mean that it's not more difficult than it was 10 years ago. The pace has increased, but retail is strong. Retail is very strong in the States. We see the numbers and retail is solid here in Canada, not the same kind of growth numbers that you see posted, but it's solid. There's not a lot of store closures, certainly compared to the U.S. market. Again, a bit of the factor of not being overbuilt to begin with, a little less exuberance, so to speak which is kind of characteristic in the in the Canadian market. So um, yeah, the dynamics are in some ways the same, some ways different, and, and it's always a treat to chat about. Them.
0: Yes, Michael, I loved having you on the show and hearing about all of the nuances and differences and the market and consumers and just what's going on in general in retail in Canada. So it was a really insightful conversation. Thanks for joining.
1: Well, Julia, thanks for having me on. It's a, again, a real treat to be on the other side of the microphone and uh, just talking about retail. I could I could talk about it for hours. So next time you expand the concept into a four-hour program, one of those uh, <laughs> one of those four-hour endless discussion kind of podcast marathon. It's a marathon. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm there. Sign me up.
0: Love it. Love it. And if our listeners would like to hear more from you, uh, your podcast, where can they find it?
1: Yeah, they, you find my podcast on all the major podcast platforms: Apple, Spotify, and just search for the Voice of Retail. Even shorter, if you generally, if you search for retail, it comes up pretty high around the world. If you want to learn a bit more about me, uh, LinkedIn, of course, or on meleblanc.co.co is the ways to uh, learn more or, or get in touch or just uh, subscribe to the podcast each and every week interviewing uh, interesting folks. In the current episode, I interviewed uh, Ron Johnson, who uh, you may remember from Apple Retail, JCPenney, and now he's got his concept Enjoy, which is just launched here in Toronto. So always interesting people. and. Um, Always an interesting perspective each and every week.
0: Mm-hmm. And I will attest it was a great conversation to listen into. So check it out. The Voice of Retail podcast with Michael LeBlanc from the M.E. LeBlanc & Company, Inc. and Retail Council of Canada. You
1: got it. You got it. Absolutely.
0: All right. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Julia. Have a great
0: day. You too. And one last note, this is for our listeners who represent a retailer or a brand. If you would like to join a small panel of executives at our upcoming Rethink Retail dinner in New York City this January, that's at the same time as NRF's big show, please reach out to me at julia at rethink.industries for more information or to be considered. I encourage you to apply and note that spots are limited. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.